This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. I'm standing on the edge of the largest freshwater lake in the United Kingdom. Loch Ney in Northern Ireland, at over 150 square miles, is just a vast body of water. And in its depths is a very precious resource that's been part of the story of this loch and of the communities that sit on its shoreline since the earliest days, since the hunters and gatherers. And open country has been drawn here because of that resource. And it is the Loch Ness Eel. So we're standing here at the Lower River Ban, right outside Loch Ness Fishermen's Cooperative Society in Tunbridge. We're on the Ban side and uh, just in front of us we have what is called the Silver Eel Weir. And it's a very important part of Tuma Eel fishery because at certain times during the year, normally from sometime in August through to December, all very weather dependent as everything is with Loch Ness, there will be Silver Eels making their way back down the Lower River Ban towards the spawning site in Sargasso Sea and we are permitted to capture a proportion of the silver eels making that journey. Obviously on the other side you'll see is a gap, it's called the Queen's Gap and there's a proportion then of the silver eels that will travel past and bypass the weir and make their way safely down and out through to the Sargasso Sea for spawning and for breeding. So the eel, its movement, its capture, it is such an important part of the story of Loch Ness and the communities who, who live and work around it. The eel is central, really, isn't it? This strange creature that I think some of us might go, ooh, eel. But you don't, Cathy. You definitely Not don't. One bit, no. And my grandfather uh, was a fisherman. He uh, had 13 children. Uh, six of those were sons. All of them had spent some time or other on the loch fishing with him. Two of them uh, remain to fish on the loch. Um, they're in their 60s and their 70s, although you wouldn't think it when you meet them because all of those fantastic eel oils have certainly done their skin. Uh, the w- world of good. <laughs> Secret of eternal Yes. Did you have anything to do with the eels? Yeah, I would have ran lines for my uncles, and that's basically, they bring in their long line from the lock. Uh, it's been all messed up with eels and bait, and you would have basically been paid pittance to sit for probably about four to five hours to try and clean that line and get it back into array for them to bait up the next day. So it was sore in the fingers, and it was sore on, <laughs> on the morale sometimes, but it got me out on a Saturday night, so that was the most important thing. <laughs> Well, this is a very special time of year, the beginning of May, isn't it, for the whole eel industry here in Loch Ness? Yeah, well, it's uh, great to be standing here on the bright sunshine on the 1st of May, celebrating the new fishing season for eels. And it happens very early in the morning, the drawing in of the lines with hopefully a good catch of eel. They'll set their lines today and they'll leave them overnight and they'll go out probably about five o'clock in the morning because it's still a little bit dark these mornings. As the summer progresses, they can go out a little bit earlier. So I am going to be given the chance to be part of this great tradition of fishing on the loch. I am looking forward to it, despite the early hour. It will be quite a special experience. It will indeed, and I hope you have a great time. We've been gifted with the most beautiful spring morning. The sun is just rising above the trees on the far side of the water that I can see. There is a little bit of a breeze and it's whipping up the water, but it's still okay for us to head out and meet up with some fishermen who have been out on the loch since four o'clock this morning. We're heading off from Cramfield Pier and a couple of the uh, loch's patrol staff, the bailiffs, I suppose, are going to take us out to meet the fishermen. 
Come on so board. Step aboard. Yep. There's the fishing boat that we're going to approach this morning. It's just a tiny little dot on the water. Yeah, it's a wee wee dot, yes. And then looking across the horizon, it always astounds me how it's like sailing out into a sea because the water and the sky meet on the horizon. But there's a large, is that a sand extraction barge? Yes, yeah, a just sand there. edger, yes, it's heading into a certain area of ground, you know, it's heading yeah. into that ballerunan area. And with some great bird life there, look there, it's herons. Absolutely, the loch's completely full of life. As the fish start to, to raise to feed on the fly, guys, you've probably seen yes, we'll have many of fly. Them, yeah. But everything happens with the fly. You know, the birds get fed, you have your migrating birds as well, your legs of the swallows and stuff coming in. For people who would visit the loch, the fly would be a bit of a menace for them. But for fishermen, it's a great sign. It's a sign the loch's coming to life and the feeding's beginning. You know, the feeding frenzy's beginning. It's time to fish. So I've clambered aboard this small open craft and Dee and Dick McElroy are here and they're just busy working away at the side of the boat, pulling in the line. Set these lines yesterday afternoon, one o'clock. We've got our bit oh, in. <laughs> He's just hauled this eel out and it flies up into the air. These are kept live for the market. Oh, that's a big one. Let me see this. It's, this is my first sight. And it, there's this big uh, metal tub at the back of the boat and it's full, it's got scale fish in it and the eels, and there they are, this long, slender, silky body. They're quite brown or green-backed, aren't they? And then the silver body underneath, if I just poke that, you can see it. Woo! It rides in your hands. It's got this sort of pointed face and then the long fin on its back. And there's another one that's even bigger. How many are you expecting to catch of a morning? This is just the start of the season and it's doing exceptionally well for the start. 50 to 60 is a line, which is good at this, this time of the year. Like Today we should fitly get our quota, no bar, which is six stone. And this quota, it's part of maintaining this, you know, the, the fish stock. Stock levels, yes. It's, uh, it's we're happy enough for the system, you know. Yeah. Every man wants to catch as much as he can, but you have to think of tomorrow too, like, you know. This long line method is a very old method of fishing, is, and it's probably one of the most sustainable ways of fishing for eels. In the 1960s, they used to trawl here for fishing, but it proved to be too successful. It really wiped the fish species out. So this head revert back to the old way of fishing here. <laughs> I feel like I'm being christened <laughs> by, by watery Loch Ness eels. And how long have you two been fishermen? Oh, all our lives. We had our dad whenever it's good holidays and then we just picked it up from that. And was it expected of you to have to learn to fish? Well, there's very few other choices. Yeah. Yeah, very few. Very few other jobs in the region. And as you pull the line, it's, it's a long thread, isn't it? And, and it's weighted in places with pebbles. Every ten hooks there's a stone to keep it on the bottom. It's an incredibly long line. And he's pulled it all in and you look at it in the box and it's like a massive pile of spaghetti. And they work so fast, his hands, one over the other, catches an eel, throws it into the tub. You're very exposed out here. You, you don't have a lot of shelter. Well, get used to it. <laughs> but it's a treacherous piece of water nonetheless. Yeah, but you have to respect the water at all times. Like If it's too bad, you just don't go out. And where might these eels go? These eels are air freighted to Holland every day. And they're still alive when yes, they're... They're still alive when they go to the processors, yes. Do you know when you're going to get a good catch? You know, and how, how does that very famous Loch Ness fly 
play its part. We like to see them, they are maybe annoying, getting in your eyes or whatever, but they reassure us that nature's working. Part of the natural cycle of the law, you know. You're enjoying swinging those over, patting yeah, me on the arm. You have to stand back with a ring. I'm back on the pier, the patrol boat, Stephen Ryan and, and Frankie, Frank. the crew, have brought me back again. It's amazing to see Stephen, really yeah. amazing. Yeah, it's great. It's exciting, you know, to get out the first morning and see the fishermen out. And especially this morning, we've seen a good yield of a good quality... I saw other boats out on the water with us, yeah. so uh, do people have a patch on the loch? Yes, absolutely, you know, like fishermen can move around the whole 156 square miles, you know. They have areas of where they're going back to their ancestral, you know, like grounds of where they fished before. You know, the fishermen have got a wealth of knowledge, a wealth of knowledge. And you're watching that all the time Certainly, as yes. you're patrolling out on the boat. But we saw the eels coming into the tub and they were saying that they're going to bring them in and by tomorrow they'll be in Holland. Yes, they'll definitely be in the smokehouse within 24 hours. But there are strict quotas. How how do you decide what to keep? How much can you keep? Again, it's down to size of eels, you know. Uh, again, the market gives a perfect size of eel, which is good for smoking, which is good for yield, which is also good for the fishermen. Because if they can release the smaller ones, again, they can be there for the next generation. Do you eat eels? Yes, I do. I eat all the Loch Ness fish. I couldn't eat enough of them. <laughs> I'm back with Cathy Chowan of the Loch Ness Fishermen's Cooperative. And from what we've heard, this is a very special product. But they're not hugely consumed within Northern Ireland, considering it's such a special product from within the waters of this country. Yes, and really a couple of miles off the loch shore, you'll find a lot of people haven't even seen an eel, never mind tasted one. I grew up around the loch, so of course you love to see a bag of eels arrive and you knew that you were going in for a lovely scrumptious dinner. That beautiful oil that comes off the eel is a fantastic flavour and it's got great succulency to the product as well. It's actually the oil is one of the reasons why our eel is so special because... Uh, Loch Ness eel grows wild, um, feeds on these fantastic nutrients. It's got a particularly high oil content compared to other wild eel, but also especially so to farmed eels. You know, we underestimate how beautiful it is to eat and how important it is within our community. And anybody that does know anything about the eel are always mystified by its life cycle. And once people get to know a little bit about the story, they always fall in love with eel. I've come out onto the silver eel weir that spans almost to the other side of the river. So I am now standing above the lower river ban, which from here flows about 60 kilometres out to the North Sea. I'm with Derek Evans, who's with AFBI. You are a senior fisheries scientist, and AFBI is the Agri-Food and Biosciences Institute. And I know you've been involved with eels for a long, long time in your career. Yes. <laughs> Almost as long as this silver eel. We were built in 1947. It feels like that. <laughs> so, Derek, where's the easiest place to start the story of the eel? Well, given that we're standing on top of the silver eel weir, we'll begin with the silver eels. We now understand that the silver eels leave after they've been in the freshwater system for around 18 years for females and on average 12 years for males. The typical female would be about the length of your arm and a male is no longer or in and around the length of a, a typical ruler. The males leave first, being smaller and shorter, they need a sort of six or seven weeks head start over the females and then there'll be a bit of a mixed catch of males and females together and then the end of the silver eel run is dominated by the big females that will have come from 
much, much further south, even as far down as the lower river ban. We know next to nothing of silver eels and what they do in their ocean. As it stands at the moment, the biological information that we have about silver eels crossing what we still think is the Atlantic to go to the Sargasso is uh, dependent upon six silver eels that were taken from the stomachs of two sperm whales in the late 1920s. <laughs> and the rest is a mystery. The rest is a mystery. Because of your work, and I understand to be very close cooperation with the fishermen themselves, you understand a lot about what actually happens for the eel in the loch. Well, we left our journey at the silver eels who disappeared into the big blue box of the Sargasso Sea. The journey picks up from there about a year later. We begin to see the return of glass eels, or more commonly known throughout UK and Ireland as elvers, and they begin to arrive within the estuaries of our major river systems, such as the Ban here, or out west we have the Urn. After that, once the water temperatures uh, in the river systems and that sort of reach a crucial 10 degrees, that's whenever they become active and they'll start to climb their way up up through the river systems and many people in the past might have been familiar of great stories about elvers climbing waterfalls or stories of uh, seeing great numbers of eels climbing over mossy banks at the sides of rivers to make their way upstream. All of it's true but none of it has been seen since 1983 after which there had been a, a, a real collapse in the, the stock of elvers. Mm-hmm. Once they get into the river system here and then make their way into Loch Ness we don't see them again for maybe the next five or six years. They're busy crawling around the bottom, eating the various bits and pieces of invertebrates here, particularly in Loch Ness, the very large Loch Ness black fly. Uh, which, I think there's one actually hovering just behind your head. Well, they're whoppers. But that's, uh, that's part of what makes the Loch Ness eel so, so tasty and, and so famous. How does it then happen that the stage comes that they return, you know, start that journey back? The trigger to change from a yellow to a silver eel is that that eel has reached a very critical amount of fat and it needs to be above 16 to 18 percent body fat so then as it leaves to swim from europe and go back to the sargasso it never ever eats the whole time it's running on fat the whole time it's running on a battery and this is why silver's like the sun because a sunny summer means they eat more and they finish off that last portion of their metamorphosis to turn from yellow to silver. And back at base, really, of the Loch Ness Fishermen's Cooperative, and I'm with Pat Close, you're the CEO, and I know you've had a long experience with this organisation, and it has an amazing history. We are now just over 50 years old, having been established in 1965, The eel industry in general on Loch Ness has had quite a turbulent history. The record books will show that there were a succession of prosecutions uh, taken against individual fishermen. Do you mean it was illegal to take eels from the loch? Absolutely, uh, it was considered illegal. Uh, That's not to say it didn't happen in some regard. So what happened in the early 60s on the back of the latest court cases at that time which resulted in some fishermen being prosecuted. A group of the more forward-thinking fishermen, if you like to put it that way, got together of a, a wintry November evening. And the story goes that someone came up with the bright idea that there was a recently installed Catholic curate just arrived in the parish a couple of years earlier, and a couple of fishermen were dispatched the 100 metres up the road 
informed Father Kennedy who they were and what their business was and asked if he had any suggestions or ideas and he uh, in his inimitable way suggested that he would think about it and get back to them. By the time they got back the 100 metres down the road to the hall, Father Kennedy was right behind them and uh, he remained a central part of the organisation for the next 50 odd years up until his death in 2013. So it was his idea to form a cooperative mm. and to run it as a as a company in a way and to try and take back ownership of the yeah. fishing of eel on Loch Ney. The first steps were to gather some money. So that resulted in 1965 in the cooperative being established and acquiring a 20% shareholding in the company as it was at that time. Uh, that opened a number of doors for them. In the first place, it got a fisherman's representative to sit on the board of directors. That particular seat was taken by Father Kennedy as their representative. It also opened the door to the legitimate marketing of some eels caught by fishermen through the company. By late 1971, early 1972, they were in the position to buy the company outright. Now, that's a very quick turnaround, but they were very clear from the start that the focus of the cooperative would be in improving the circumstances of the fishermen. And I like to think that that remains the case 52 years later. Naturally, because it's such a large fishery and we're dealing with large volumes of fish, we could be currently talking about 400 tonnes per year. A major element of what we do has to be focused on sustainability and conservation. It's a natural uh, resource which you can't you know, we delve cannot, into t too deeply and, and we cannot, you destroy it then. We, we cannot overexploit it. Mm. That's something we want to protect for future generations. At this stage in the cooperative's history, we're now talking perhaps third generation fishermen during that lifetime, but they come from long lines of family names back into the past. And they are part of an even longer history of people living alongside, you know, the loch. It provided a livelihood for the earliest hunters and gatherers. Absolutely, there is archaeological evidence of mm. eel fishing along this stretch of river on the lower band dating back 2,000 years and more. And there's evidence of commercial activity dating back 200 years. So, yeah, we've been going a while, but there's a lot more to come, we hope. The eel fishing has been such a long part of this landscape's heritage. In fact, there's been mention of archaeological finds of eel fishing. What I've done now is I've come right down the western side of the loch to, um, what's this particular area? It's Mountjoy Fort that we're standing in at the minute and that was an English campaign fort during the Nine Years' War. So I'm here with Ruth Logue and Grace McAllister. So when you say we're in a fort. Well, we're not really as I stand in it, are we? <laughs> no, because there's not actually many remains to see today. It's just really we're in a sort of grazed field and with the lock just a couple of hundred metres away. The fields seem to reflect the shape of the fort, so we're doing geophysics in these couple of fields to see if we can pick up any underground remains of the fort. And what do we know of the fort? It was constructed in July 1602, towards the end of the Nine Years' War. And Loch Ney was very important. It was very strategic because it allowed uh, the English forces to get deeper into like, the rebel heartland, the O'Neill heartland. But where we're standing, 
which is where you say the fort is below our feet, the remains of. And the loch, it's quite a distance away now. So the loch levels have changed dramatically over the last 400 years. There was great efforts to lower the loch actually in the 19th century. There's a sharp drop just beyond the field and that's actually where the loch shore would have come up to and that would be in the boundary or the where the banks and the ditches of the fort were. It was a critical time in the yeah. history of mm-hmm. Ireland, wasn't it? Definitely. Because then it led to the flight of the earls. Yes. From then on, the, you know, the great plantations that took place. Mm-hmm. You need to find below this lush green sward the story of this castle mm-hmm. and the fort, but also of the history that went before. The English fort is the fort that's really well mapped, but... Was this a strategic place even before that? So was there a Gaelic fort maybe here that this replaced? And this is all important in an archaeological sense because it's history for everybody. There was the English forts, but there are also the Neil forts and the Irish forts, and they're dotted all around the Loch Shore. So there is that connection between all the different points of the Loch, even though the Loch is so big. You know, when you're looking across to the other side, it seems so far away and you can't imagine those connections. But if you put it in the context of this conflict and if you imagine boats and fleets of ships going from one fort to another, it really makes the lock a lot closer and um, makes it a lot more relevant. It is a great piece of history. It, it deserves to be told, to be explored, and particularly by local people, mm. that they can get physically involved in it. Mm-hmm. And that's why we're doing this geophysical survey at the minute and we hope that that will eventually lead to an excavation because I think it's really by discovering that archaeology for yourself and digging it up, um, touching the artefacts and discovering the things for yourself you really get a sense of the history and you get a sense of your past and a lot of the families around here will probably still be the same families as were back then, the same names, so it is everybody's history, it's everybody's to discover. The ownership of the loch is complex, and not just for the Fishermen's Cooperative. Liam Campbell works for the Loch Ney Partnership to try and encourage more people to feel a sense of connection with the loch. I mean, it's an inland sea. Yeah. I mean, on a good day when we're standing from here, you can just about see the moorns mm-hmm. at the other end. So you're talking over 20 miles. To cycle round, it's about 100 miles. Uh-huh. It's a working loch. It's not primarily a tourist place. So you have people as diverse as, you know, environmental organisations to the sand traders, to the eel fishermen, the scale fishing, the community groups. You know, everybody's at the table. I mean, 40% of the water, the drinking water of Northern Ireland, nearly 50% comes from here. You know, so it's an important place. You know, historically, this was a great connector. And I suppose part of our role is to try and get some sense of Loch identity, some sense of reconnection and rekindling or, you know, building new relationships as well. So you mean people cr- cross the water between communities? They, they use this as a highway to connect them to families or businesses on the far side. But then that came to an end and then there are divisions. If you think of a map of Northern Ireland or of Ulster, and you think of the size of Loch Ness, it's like the hub of a bicycle. And it really was a hub of connections. Mm-hmm. And I think for all sorts of reasons, people had become distanced from it. Historical reasons and, and, and natural reasons as mm-hmm. well. Political yeah. reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes. yes. And your role is to try and connect people and landscape and history and the industries of the place together. Yeah. 
And sometimes you can think that's a daunting task, you know, to reconnect those things. But it is about reconnecting because we're standing here on sand. The levels of the lock have been lowered, but beaches have been here for millennia. And I'm only realising that actually people that I talked to in the 50s and the 40s remember coming to what they call the sandy shores, the beaches, all those names, Washing Bay, they all evoke people being connected and coming to visit it. So even though we say it's a working lock, this was a place where people came for leisure as well. And for some reason or other, we got disconnected from it. You know, I think our job, and in one way it's difficult, in another way it's not, because it's not new connections. It's, it's rekindling the old ones.